0: And according to Dr. Boyd, I am too slow. I know that, right? I mean, we're still in chapter 1. I told him we were in chapter 2. And he said, that was terrible. And I said, well, actually, now that I actually think about it, I think we we just got to verse 17 of chapter 1. And he looks at me and he goes, you need to speed up. What are you doing? You're not going to make it. He says, don't follow our example. I said, okay, I'll get through. I'll get through two chapters today. The goal is to get to chapter three today and to aggressively catch up. If you look at the schedule, which doesn't really do anything because it's not real, uh, I'm supposed to be on chapter seven in a week. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, right. But you have to give me some credit because I did cover half the Bible, or like a quarter of the Bible in, in three weeks. So I mean... You, I mean, there's got to be some reward for that. Uh, anyways, actually, a lot of what I covered in the past we're going to use today. So you better remember it all. Otherwise, what I'm about to tell you won't make any sense. And you'll be thoroughly confused. And you'll be sad that you didn't memorize everything I told you before. So you won't be that sad. You'll just be suicidal. Uh, Know, all right, (laughs) whatever. Um, Well, let's begin with the word "prayer" with that humorous note, and and dive actually into something quite tragic. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for what it depicts about the office of king. And as we study that and see the tragedy of a king lost, and see the necessity of a king and his high position and his great stature and his great importance and his cosmic influence help us to thereby finish the picture with understanding that the one who fills that position is the Lord Jesus Christ and how necessary the king is and how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is as a position well much more so the person much more so the person of your son. And as we study the foundations, help us not to forget to finish the work that you have already revealed in your word. And through this preparation to increase our love and our awe and our wonder at the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus the Messiah. Help us to see the brilliance also of your plan today and And once again, take our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own purposes and desires and our own selfish desires even in Christianity and place those where they ought to be, namely upon you and your son and your glory and your honor as seen throughout all human history as you work. Be with these fellow believers, Lord, they are such a joy to my heart You know that, you know how much we all as faculty here at the college desire to invest in them, strengthen them, give them great encouragement, refine their heart, soften it so that it would be living and active and loving you. Thank you for this time, Lord. Be honored at any expense. Be honored now. In your name we pray. Amen. Come on in. Um, we were just getting into this discussion about "tell it not in gap," right? SPP number two, yes. So we just kind of launched into this, and I and I said that the phrase became both proverbial but also literal. You, I think sometimes we make this artificial distinction between the two that if it's proverbial, it can't be literal. <coughs> you know, don't cry over spilled milk. So a mom will never use that phrase over spilled milk. You know, she'll use some other colloquialism like it's okay, you know, or something. I mean, no, you can still use the phrase about spilled milk. In fact, most likely, what's the first thing to be spilled? Milk. Because that's what children drink hypothetically. You know, maybe formula now or yeah, you know, sometimes orange juice. But you know, no one says don't cry over spilled beer or something. There's a reason for that. Because that's just generally not what happens in the origins of proverbial statements, we hope. So there is sometimes far too great of a distinction of tell it not in gaffe. Well that's a proverbial statement, it no longer talks about gaff. Does this make sense? No, it still can talk about Gath, And it still can also mean, at the same time, by that very phrase, this is a tragedy. This is something that the enemies will rejoice over. Therefore, don't tell it to Israel's archenemy, the Philistines. And um, what we will see through this, and I'm jumping the gun here quite a bit, But I I do want to show you this. And those of you who are in my minor prophets class, you'll have a jump start already on the book of Micah. But there is this incredible theme in the book of Micah with the tell it not in Gath. Why? You tell me why. Why is David saying tell it not in Gath? What is the historical event that caused this to happen? The death of Saul. Saul. The total demise, the execution of the Saulite dynasty. Does this make sense? It's over. It's dead in David's mind. So in Micah, why is there this call to tell it not in gap? who died? What died by implication? Not just Israel, the king, which king? Which line of kings? Saul? He's already dead. So which line of kings is now over? David, Does that make sense to everybody? Micah opens with a funeral dirge for the Davidic kings. The exile means that it's over for them. Are you with me on that? The exile means no more Davidic kings. No more. They're over. The dynasty is done. Just like Saul ended... So now David ends. You're like, wait a minute, that destroys everything. And you don't even have to tell me about the Davidic covenant, what you've been saying all along. I mean, God has to be faithful. For yeah, I agree with you. But you have to let the text say what it says. Otherwise, you don't see what's going on. Does this make sense to everybody? You can't just hijack the text and say, well, I know that the Davidic covenant is going to continue. Therefore, this can't mean what it means. No, it means what it means. You just have to see how God plays everything out, Right? Don't jump the gun. Let God do what he does, and there will be much glory in it. The Davidic dynasty is over. It is so over that, as I turn there, at the end of chapter one of Micah, oh, I passed it. Here we are. At the end of chapter one, what does it say? The glory of Israel goes where? Verse 15, I believe, in English. Where does it go? a Adullam. Adullam, yeah. Either way. Either way is wonderful. And you say, What's so important about that? Tell it not in Gath. Tell it, why not? Why, why can't I tell it in Gath? The glory of Israel. Who's the glory of Israel? The king. He's going to where? Adullam. Anyone know where Adullam is? Okay, it's in Israel? Yeah. And there's a, yeah, there's a cave. It's in a, there's caves. The caves of Adullam. This is when David became Robin Hood. Okay? This is when David became Robin Hood. And when he went into the caves of Adullam, he was running away from Saul. Okay, he just ran away. Uh, if you are doing a map of David's life, you know, okay, so here's like, you know, here's like David, and he runs to Akish king of Gath. And then he says, uh-oh, or no, first he goes to Nob, which is like right there, and says, oh, I lied to you, ha-ha-ha, and then I left. Um, but you know I lied to you. You might have been a co-conspirator, like, We all know that's the part. He runs to Akish king of Gath. Akish says, dude, you killed Goliath. I'm going to kill you. And he's like, oh, I just so happen to have Goliath's sword. Bad move. Uh, remember that you remember that? i mean this is just dumb like david i don't understand what you're doing and david says in a psalm later i didn't know what i was doing i was really dumb thank the lord i survived yep that would be true and he runs and says okay now i'm in a land i'm in the caves and that is the official mark when all these people come around him from all these different lands of the beginning of david as king because now he's got some people under him does this make sense everybody David, when he goes to Adullam, he gets his band, you know, his merry men. That's like Robin Hood, right? Is that? Well, anyway, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And he, formed, he forms his group. And that's the beginning of David king in wandering. So, Micah here says, the glory of Israel goes back to where? Adullam, what does that mean? The caves. Yeah, but what's so important about these caves? What do they mark? They yeah, the wandering. You're kicked out of your kingdom. You start from scratch all over again. You lost it all. You're back to square one. David started there. You're back to square one. Davidic dynasty is dead they go back to square one, you're back in wandering with their whole people who are in exile, and they're wandering too. Uh, see, for those of you who are minor prophets, then now, now you can see the connection, right? What I talked about before, uh, as depicted in Obadiah, day of the Lord, new conquest, end of exile, that's like the end of the wilderness wanderings, wilderness wanderings for David, wilderness wanderings for Israel. Do you see all, a lot of Here, I'll draw them. So, you have WW stands for wilderness wanderings. Israel's got them. Yes? Then David has another wilderness wanderings. Does that make sense? Israel returns to a wilderness wandering in the exile. That's the motif. They're just wandering out in all these different lands. And then God in the Minor prophets, according to the book of Obadiah, is going to bring them back from exile. That they are going to have a new conquest. Just like after the wilderness wanderings, there was a conquest. After David's wilderness wanderings, there's a conquest. And the exile, after the exile, according to Obadiah, there's a conquest. A new conquest. Does this make sense to everybody? And then, but what happens simultaneous with Israel's exile? There's also a what? Exile for David the Davidic house, and they go back to wilderness wanderings too, when Israel goes to exile. Do you see that? Does that make sense? See, so you can start to put all this together. That's why you probably have to study second Samuel before you study the minor prophets. So this whole picture kind of nicely fleshes out. Anyways, but it doesn't matter. We don't have to study things in order here. Uh, we just get confused. So, but eventually it will become clear. See, all you have to do is study 66 books in order eventually and then plug in whatever I say, and then it'll make sense. And then it's over. Okay, good. It's over for Israel, and it's over for David at this point. I mean, that's what the text is saying. You just have a funeral dirge. You're burying these people. By the way, Ezekiel chapter 19 has the exact kind of idea with the funeral dirge for the Davidic house. So there's a parallel even here with Ezekiel 19. Anyways, what happens? All of a sudden everything is turned around in the latter days of chapter four of Micah verse 1. And if you continue, we get all the way back. You know, now for some reason, in some way, this nation, this city of Jerusalem, which was originally decimated by the exile, its king kicked out, and all these kinds of things. Now you have a new kingdom. You have a new capital renewed, more specifically. And then in chapter five, in English, verse two, what do you have? The famous prophecy about where David will be born. And it makes great Bible trivia. And it tells you, you know, I was in my OT survey class and they're really a great bunch of students. They really are. And I'm asking, so why? Who cares that David's born in Bethlehem? And they're like, well, the Bible says it. I said, yep. But if that's your only answer, and you don't know why the Bible's saying what it's saying, then you haven't finished the job, right? And it's like, and I started going over through all these different funny examples that torture them, you know, like so why why does Joseph not have a color coat? It's actually long sleeve, you know, and why does why does um, you know Samson get a barber to cut his hair, or Delilah gets a barber to cut Samson's hair? And they're like, what? We didn't even know that, you know. And it's like, why? And they said, well, why? So I'll tell you later, and. Uh, you know, they're like, ah, we hate you. And like, good, good. <laughs> you know, go to the dark side. No, uh, the. Why, why in this story in Micah? The Davidic dynasty is dead. It goes back to square one. So what do you need now? What do you need now? Not just a king. You need land. Well, you got that already. That's a good question. You got that. Because remember, earlier in Micah 4, Jerusalem's back on the map. So we're good with that. We got land. What do you need? What do you need if the dynasty has totally fallen apart and the Davidic dynasty, David's dynasty, is dead? Everyone, from David on, dead. Yes. Yes. These are all true. Uh, yes. Yes, <laughs> but there's something more foundational. Okay. Um, okay, well, let's just try that. Let's just do a, an example. Okay, you two come up here. Man, I hope this is. Oh, man, there's something in here. Okay. Your job, your job, Roger, and, uh, and eventually Nick's job is to erase everything I'm drawing on the board, okay? That's your job. So grab an eraser, grab an eraser, okay? Hey, Nick, you're not supposed to go in yet, okay? Okay. (laughs) And then you died, so Nick's turn to jump in, and then he stops, because he failed too. See, everything's not erased. So what do you need to, to, you could say, well, I need a priest, I need all these things. What do you fundamentally need to get the job done? You need, yeah, a new king, a replacement. Right? Duh. Yeah. Thank you. That, that was great. <laughs> maybe, maybe I should do that for fun. Like, hey, Roger, die. You know, like, <laughs> see, see what happens. <laughs> Resurrection. You know. Okay. You need a replacement, don't you? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, yes, you need a right king or a right priest. Yes, you need a temple. Yes, you need you need a new king. But you need more than a new king. You need a replacement. You need a replacement. Does this make sense to everybody? It's all over. And who do you have to replace? Just the old line? No, you need to replace what? The foundation. His name is David. You need to replace David. That's where the problem started. That's where it all ends. So you need to replace that guy. You need to have a new David come around. Hence, Jesus is born where? Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. The story is the Davidic dynasty has died, but there is one who will look like David, smell like David, born from David, do what David did, but actually succeed. And he restarts the Davidic dynasty. Yes, sir? So Jesus is supposed to be the fulfillment of the Davidic dynasty, like the Davidic dynasty, how is he the replacement of it? Do you see uh, that? He's, in the sense of this, they failed, they couldn't hold it. He extends, but instead of just being one who follows the same trajectory, he carries them all on his own shoulder, so to speak. He stands in for them, and where they have failed, he succeeds. And so now, when God looks at the Davidic line and says, you're a fallen house, you haven't done anything right you can't live up to your prom, the promise I've given to you. Now, who does he see? The substitute. But there was one in your line who covered the entire line. And he substituted for this entire line. And he fulfilled what they ought to be. So now I can give you what you deserve. And the, and the you there must be the son, Jesus, who comes from the line of David. That's why he can actually do all the things that he needs to do. But His role relative to the line is not just, here's big D, David, and you have a king, another king, another king, another king, and when God sees this, or whoops, let's not draw God like that. When God sees this, he just sees David in a downward spiral. Instead, now, he sees someone. Instead of seeing David, he sees who? His son. And all of this is swallowed up by the victory of Christ. Does that make sense? So it's not that David isn't, or Jesus is not in the line of David, or doesn't continue the line of kings. He does. But more specifically, the way he continues it is he stands in for the entire dynasty and fulfills it. Does that make sense? Does that help? Yep. Yes, sir in the uh so in the maccabean period yeah in those 400 years is that where like the line was going on they were trying to put in the right high priest line and they tried to fit the ruler in as a king kind of and it just didn't work out and that kind of led to hell hellenism in a way yes that's a very astute observation um yeah what they were what the maccabees were trying to do was institute a davidic kingdom here was the problem um they couldn't get the right priest they instituted themselves as a priest because they're fallen people eager for power and so they had a judahite judean priest well that was a problem they weren't really in the line of david and they were corrupt and it it totally backfired on them and so instead of being a true because what you see here in micah 5 2 in english this is a king his reign never ends he has the subjection of all the kingdoms all these kind of things they couldn't sustain that the Maccabees could not sustain that. Instead, they had to beg Rome to help them and to, and to start to imbibe slowly Hellenism into their ranks because of compromises they had to make for that to happen. And it collapsed. The opposite happened because they couldn't live up. Once again, they just could not live up to what the Davidic covenant proposed, prophesied. Yeah, good question. Question here and then question there. Yes. So did the Jews before Jesus and like even the apostles like understand that picture like this
1: is
0: what needs to happen? Yeah. And so that's why like the apostles are so confused by what Jesus is doing. Yeah. Yeah. Two things about that. First, that's why the Jewish people were thinking, this is our king. He's going to what? Deliver us from the Romans. Of course they're going to think that. That's what the Bible says. You know? And so they're like yeah except they forgot something ah back to minor prophets you're like I should take that class y- you can get in here so um, Psalm 22 remember minor prophets people remember that me talking about that and the kingdom belongs to the Lord first occurrence happens in Psalm 22 the way the kingdom is obtained the way this king does this an important element of it per the Davidic covenant is suffering suffering. Psalm 22. What's the first line? Anyone can say it. It doesn't matter. You're not cheating. You could read it for me even. My God, why have you forsaken me? Ever heard of that before? Jesus, yeah, that's good. <coughs> it's cited at least two times. One in Psalm, or actually, five, you know, okay, well you get three times to be technical. Matthew, Mark have it, and Psalms has it. Why? Why does our Lord say that? Because the, this, there's immense suffering for the Davidic king, but it is suffering in the paradigm of the promises of the Davidic Covenant, such that after he suffers and he's delivered, what you have at the end of the book of Psalm, or at the end of Psalm 22 is that this Davidic king, because of his incredible deliverance, from death itself will lead Israel in worshiping God and fulfilling the promises made to Israel. He will also have all the nations bow before God. Why? Because of his deliverance. Somehow, this king, by his suffering, will create a deliverance. How does that exactly work out? Well, you have Isaiah 53 and some other passages to help flesh it out. Does this make sense? It was... It was through a suffering that would project ultimate victory. That's what Psalm 22, that's what David realized, because, well, I'll tell you later. And and at that moment, the kingdoms would belong to the Lord. What Israel and the apostles missed, or wanted to forget, I think, was... Jesus was supposed to be a conquering king. He is supposed to be the conquering king. That's what he died to save, right? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's his reward? His reward is what? The world and the worship of the world, physical world, fulfillment of Israel's promises. He rules as a physical king in this planet. Does this make sense to everybody? That's his reward. And it's still his reward. That's why he comes back to earth. That's not why we all just zoom into heaven. Does this make sense to everybody? That's why he has to come back. That's why there's a second coming. Just like the first, he comes to earth. Second, he comes also to earth. For that very reason. There's a physical, tangible quality to this. However, what they didn't understand was the means. And so they were right to... They were right to exalt Jesus as this king and say, Hosanna, and all these kinds of things. Amen, true, but they didn't understand the means, and that really disturbed them, really disturbed them. Part of Mark's gospel is showing you, yes, Jesus had to suffer. That's the means. That's the means, and it looks dark, and it looks terrible, but behind it all and through that, If you just look at that external veneer, you are going to miss the glory that is accomplished through the suffering. You are going to miss that through suffering, he bought a kingdom greater than Caesar's. Does that make sense? And you're like, ooh, that's cool. That's why ending of Mark, Mark 16, 8, is so important to take the short rendering because the last is Gar' for they were afraid. That's how the book of Mark ends. Why? Because he's not this guy you just pick on anymore. He's the guy that terrifies you. They were amazed, Balmatzo, at the angels. They feared the resurrection because that proved everything. But there's a second thing. That was all the first point. The second thing to your question is this they had to, by prophecy and by their own depravity, reject the king. What they wanted was the kingdom. They wanted all the blessings and the benefits of having freedom from Rome and dominion in the earth. But they were not seeking the king. They hated the king. And most of all, they would hate to submit to him. That's why they had to kill him. But that was already planned, right? And through that, the king buys the kingdom. But you had an additional question, follow-up question, it seems like, Mark. Yeah. Um. So does that mean that when, when Jesus was talking about like the kingdom is at hand, that like, now we are in a state of like, his, of the kingdom, but like, we're anticipating the millennial <coughs> kingdom? That's right. When he talks about the kingdom is at hand, um, this, this, is the, <laughs> this is a terrible analogy, but um, you'll get the picture. That's like saying the guillotine is over you. Has it killed you yet? No, but it's about to fall. That's the state that we're in. The kingdom, we're about to fall into it. It's about to collide with us. That's our state now. It's imminent. It's near. And that's a good thing. Well, for us, not for a lot of other people who don't know the gospel. It's not good for them because that's accountability time. But it's near for us. And that's a good thing. It's like the guillotine for them. It's a bad thing. And, but it's not there yet. And that's what I would argue egus in Greek means near, or the perfect tense of egidzo means that it's right on the edge, or right on the edge. It doesn't take much for us to tip in. Um, <coughs> yeah. That's a good question. Does that help to make sense? So because he bought all of this with his death, now it's all near. Because now it's just a matter of time, right? That's what the disciples were asking him in the Olivet Discourse. So tell us when all these things are, I don't know when it's gonna happen, but it's the next thing on the, the list. So I don't know, but it's near. You know it's coming because he bought everything, or he's anticipating that he's already bought everything to make the party happen. Kim, you had a question back there. Yeah, um, so you said that the late destitute died as if he's dead? Yeah, well, at that point, it hasn't, I mean, we haven't even gotten to it yet here, but yes. Uh, I was just wondering, well, technically, the, it can't die because Jesus comes to the royal line, so the world preserved it from exile and all. Yeah, so, it, it dies... It, it's, it dies in one sense in, in the way the text portrays it. But just like you have new creation, what I would argue here is you have the resurrection of the Davidic dynasty in one man. That's how I would portray it. Yes, it's preserved physically. Yes, there is preservation occurring, but what you have is, oh, well, there's a lot of complicated things too, but essentially, you have the resurrection of the Davidic dynasty in one man who had to be born of a virgin to to bypass the Jeconiah curse. So, yeah. That's another factor, like, that seals why it had to die, right? Because Jeconiah cursed and cut off the entire line. So that, that would be a problem. Ooh, that's a good, that's another good illustration. Like, basically... Like if you're scuba diving, let's say, and I was in the water with you and I just took out some scissors and went to your you know, air tank line, to your mouth, that would probably be bad news. Because we're like, let's pretend we're really deep in water. So basically you're going to be inhaling what? Water, and you will die. And it always goes back there. So um, what you need is what? A replacement line, right? A, a replacement tubing. It's not that you don't have a tank. It's not that the promises are gone. It's not that anything. Like that. You just need the key piece to make it all work. And the piece isn't. It's not that it doesn't exist, or that we can't kind of jimmy rig, you know, your your current setup to make it work. No, we can. It all all the things are there. We just have to make the replacement part happen. Does this make sense, to everybody? And then you can live. That's the nature of Jesus. And it, it actually accomplishes the dynamics on multiple levels. But we've already kind of talked about this. Any more questions? These are good. I like when you ask questions. It, it really provokes a lot of good discussion. So keep asking questions. Uh, that actually is what you should have written in your SPP. okay? And you're like, I didn't do that. That's okay, you'll still do okay. It just meant, you just see what you need to do now, right? Don't just tell me, hey, it's used in MICA. That's nice, that's wonderful. I'm happy for you. Yeah, but that's what exactly you should have in your brain going off, an alarm. Saying, <laughs> that's not enough, you know, that's not enough. You know, see, everything's providential. So the, uh, that's just not enough. There's more to it than that. There's a whole theology that's being driven by just a small phrase of this nature. And you have to be able to identify it, okay? Any, qu- any other questions? Uh, I will have that SPP graded in a little bit. Have that and minor profits now, so um, it'll take a little bit of time, but should get back to you within a week or so. so yes, sir? So just to clarify, the Davidic line at this time is dead because of the, Jack the And because of their sin, and because of all these different factors, and because they're in exile, so there's no kingdom for them to rule over to. Yeah, there's just a the whole spread of reasons that just kills them. Yeah, like BP only has one kill option, right, for their well. God has like 12 bazillion kill options for the Davidic covenant, and they all happen at the same time, so they're really, really dead. Um, and when we mean that Davidic dynasty is dead, we mean in the exile period. Does that make sense? Right? Not right now, in Second Samuel, later on. Yeah, yeah, so very, very good, good, very good. Okay, now we're going to go back in time to where we ought to be, which is in 2 Samuel chapter one. That's just That just sounds silly. It's not that bad. It's only week three. We're only 20 percent done with the semester, so I mean, so we, we still have some time. Chapter one, verse 17. Let's uh, Have I talked about context overview) <coughs> No. Yes? Like, we haven't talked about anything in this box, right? Okay. Well, let's fill out the box. Context and overview. David, David is the right person for the job. We learned that before because of how he reveres the office by his actions and how he waits on the Lord to provide him the office rather than seizing it by his own means. That relationship between capital K-I-N-G and lowercase K-I-N-G is absolutely critical. David submits to the ultimate king. He waits on him. And that proves that God made David the right man for the job. Uh, At least in some areas, God had truly shaped him to be the right man. Really, that is the victory of God. That's God's victory that he triumphantly trained them, that he changed David to be the right person. Um, And when you read that, I mean, you just should be praising the Lord, because what he did was effective. He does change people's lives. He changed David's. That's why all of redemptive history proceeds as it does. But now, we're transitioning into this poem, this song that David writes, and it's emphasizing that not only does David act in a way that reveres the Davidic office, but David also understands. The song reflects David's own perception of the kingly office and all its implications, particularly when it's lost. Uh, The poem provides theological insight into what it means to be God's king. And as the saying goes... You don't know what you have until you lose it. Until it's gone. In the same way, now David writes about what it means to lose a king, and that gives us insight into what it means to have one. Into what it means to have one. Okay. And this provides an initial block, I think, of theology that really ties everything with what we've been talking about before. In, you know, starting from Genesis all the way to 1 Samuel together. So David chants uh, an official, this is the word for an official funeral lament, by the way. That's where I get the idea that in Micah, when Micah says the same thing that David does, that it's talking about funeral. Davidic dynasty is dead. This is a funeral lament. <clears throat> and it is meant to be long lasting. It is meant to be perpetuated. Verse 18, you see that he tells them to stay Uh, to sing this to his children and to their children implied. And it's even got a catchy tune. It's on the song of the bow. Probably in honor of Jonathan's bow. See, It's got its own song dedicated. It's got its own melody dedicated to it. And not only is it taught orally, verbally, it is written down as well to ensure its preservation. By the way, how do we know that this preservation was absolutely successful? True, that's one. And what else? Something else should tell you. Even in the history of ancient Israel, we just talked about it. It's in Micah. How did Micah? How did Micah get it? Because when he was a little kid, his parents said, "Let me teach you a song. Tell it not in gath." See that? And why did Micah's parents teach him that? Because it was a hit song for Micah's great-grandparents, you know? And why was it a hit song for that? Because David made it the hit song. And he not only wrote it in song, but he wrote it in the book of Yashar, which means the book of the upright. This is the godly hymn book. This is what you sing, okay? Songs help people remember ideas for longevity. David is saying, I don't want you to just sing this song because it's hip or because I am cool, or whatever. I want you to sing this song because it was meant to preserve a theology about the nature of the king. And it is in preparation, ironically, providentially, for David himself when he becomes king. The structure is threefold. Very simple. Verses 19 through 23 provide us the curse. Verses 19 through 23 provide us the curse. 24 and 25 provide us national mourning, national mourning, not the idea of daytime, but the idea of sadness, morning, mourning, M O U R N I N G. How do you say mourning in a new English accent? Morning. Okay. How do you say good? Good morning. Oh, doesn't work, huh? No, I'm okay. Oh, that's okay. Well, I'll have to find some other way to deal with it, you know? Okay, good. Uh,. You know, national mourning. And finally, verses 26 and 27, personal or sincere mourning. Personal or sincere mourning. So you have curse, you have national, you have personal or sincere. Verse 19, let's start there. This is the curse section. This is the curse section. What you have is the beauty of Israel. Israel. Uh, is slain. And the word for slain here on the the high places, on your high places, these are the hills. The word for slain doesn't just denote death. It denotes kind of a desecration. It implies curse. It It implies the profane. So these people didn't just die. They marred the hillside with something that was an abomination. Something that perverted beauty. It was the absolute undoing of what was lovely. That's the nature of the death of the king. It changes what is beautiful into what is perverse. And, and, and notice the play here already. You can start to see it. Just hint it. Just hinted. What was the king, according to Genesis 3 and following, supposed to do? He was supposed to turn what? Curse into blessing. But when he dies, what happens in David's mind? What was beautiful now becomes what? Profane. Do you see that? Do you see how this. He's supposed to do this, but if he's dead then it's reversed around. Does that make sense? All of Israel's blessings, the way they were supposed to bless the world, it's now all turned around. Uh, the, the way, um, the death of the king is a tragedy for, is a victory for God's enemies. That's the next point. This is why it's all curse. It turns beauty, it turns blessing into curse instead of curse into blessing. It, instead of giving God's people hope, it gives hope for God's enemies. That's where you get verse 20. Verse 20. Proclaim it not, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in Ashkelon. Otherwise, the daughters of the uncircumcised will exalt. Obviously, the Philistines were uncircumcised people, but the reason that it emphasizes daughters here, as opposed to like, well, why why somebody else? Is because (coughs) women at the time of David in the ancient Near East were used to both mourn and to celebrate. In fact, this even extends into Jesus' time. That's why you have paid mourners um, with the death of Jairus' daughter. Any case, these women would both mourn in a funeral dirge, but they'd be the ones who celebrate. You even see this with the celebration of victories in Saul's day. David's killed, or Saul and Jonathan have killed their thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Who are singing that? The men? The men's chorus? No. The women. They're coming in with their tambourines. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly it. It's not sexist. It's the truth. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I agree with you. Good. Good thought, Kim. Good. Good thought. Yeah. So, they're 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 the upgrade of cheerleaders, and a lot of them would be royal people in the royal court. A lot of them would actually be royalty. These women. So, yeah, I understand where you're coming from, Kim. Um, but these women in Philistia, they would be, um. That's what their role would be, and they would really lord it over, and the reason that this is a tragedy, the reason this is curse, is because the enemy has reason to have victory. Simple. Simple as that. But here's what's interesting. Oh, mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain beyond you, nor fields of offerings, etc., etc. Why not? What is this? O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you. What will happen if dew or rain doesn't fall on the mountains of Gilboa? What's going to happen to it? What? Yeah, it's going to dry out. If you ever go, or you should go to Israel. By the way, there's a lot of open slots for next semester, so if you want to jump on that, you should. But um, if you ever go to Israel, especially in the springtime, Gilboa is in, northern, is in Galilee. It's in the north. And Galilee is renowned for being green. At all times, but particularly during the springtime. Um, one of my last semesters in Israel, my last time in, one of my last times in Galilee, I was uh, driving in, on Mount Gilboa, just remembering this battle. By the way, here's something that you, you should consider. Okay. Gilboa, Mount Gilboa is only mentioned for this event in the Bible. And you'll see why. I'll flesh this out for you. It was green, forests, wooded. In fact, I, I brought, I think, was, I think this was Kim, no, this was the semester after Kim's semester uh, up there and I said, you know, look around you, and the death of Saul, War of the Rings. Who does it remind you of? Boromir. Boromir. It was your semester. Okay, good. Yeah, it was Boromir, and it was this just really epic moment in the classroom. I was like, whoa! It, you know, it's not even a question. People weren't even like saying Boromir. Like, is, is it Boromir? You guys know who Boromir is. Go, go watch it. That's your assignment. If you uh, go watch that scene, if you don't know what I'm talking about, but. Uh, what? Oh no, I was. I'm sorry, I was, I, I was venting Oh, okay. DVD player now. Uh, no. You can use your computer or something. Uh, the, but um, yeah, it's on YouTube as well. Actually, I have a clip of it in the OneNote file. But um, you know, there wasn't even a question. It was just this factual assertion. It was really cool, and I thought, oh, you guys understand. I mean, that's if you remember the scene with Bormir, It's like this wooded field and all this kind of. That's like Gilboa green. And what is David saying? Because the king was killed on you, may you become what? Brown. Cursed. No vegetation comes from you. Just like what happens in what? Eden. Remember? Instead of having this fruitful wonderland, now what will you struggle with? Thorns and thistles. Weeds will now come against you. David says, let that be against you, Gilboa. You made the beautiful, on you the beautiful is made profane. Now let you be cursed because of what happened. The death of the king brings a massive curse against the earth. Normally. The death of the king brings a massive curse against the earth. That's how important this guy is. This guy gives, you know, his death is beauty to profane, and it has this theological overtone. His death gives enemies rejoicing. I mean, when you die, you don't, nations don't, don't pay attention. When this guy dies, they do. They want to. This guy has a cosmic wide impact such that creation reacts to his death. What does this sound like? What, is this, what does this kind of make a connection here? Okay, yes, that's true. Christ, what specifically? When he dies, what happens? The earth shakes. It's dark. Remember this? The rocks even break open. Why? Because this is the nature of a king. This is the nature of this king. The king that God has put over the throne of Israel because of his position in redemptive history has this kind of importance. Earth-shattering proportions. How much more the ultimate king? Very, very powerful. Let not do or rain be upon you. Be brown. Now you understand why Gilboa is never mentioned again. Because now it's what? Cursed. Stricken from the record. Um, why? For there, the shield of the mighty was defiled. Um, you know, once again, we have this. I well, there's even a play on words. Uh, like something ghastly happening. Sham niga'al, magain giborim magain. Do you hear the go 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 go? It's like somebody's gasping for breath. Like, what happened? Total tragedy. And it also rhymes with Gilboa, so it's it's just it's very good play on words here. And the shield of Saul is not anointed uh, with with oil. Uh, there's a perversion here, but what what does it mean that the shield of Saul wasn't anointed with oil? When you come back from battle, what do you do? You grease up your gear, right? To get it ready for what? Another battle. Does this make sense to everybody? You don't just You don't just leave, you know, you kill somebody. It's not like your sword becomes like white as snow. You have to what? You have to clean it up. It sounds nasty, I know, but just think of it like, you have to wash your dishes, right? So you're going to have to wash your gear. Okay, it's no different. The fact that Saul was not allowed to anoint his shield again shows a divine rejection. Why... Why did this happen? It wasn't because Saul wasn't strong enough or Jonathan not fast enough. In fact, you're gonna see the direct opposite. It's because of divine rejection. Saul was not privileged and given the honor of doing something honorable. The capital K-I-N-G rejected him. That's why kings in this position die, because they're rejected. Sound familiar? What text? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Is that Is that why the uh, Jews got so angry whenever Pontius Pilate put himself on the shield or he put Caesar on the shield? Yes. Because David is supposed to be the there's only one one guy who belongs on that shield. It's not it's not Caesar. It's our Messiah. Yeah, you got it. It's idol worship otherwise Um, and so here we are verse 22 here's the nature of the king's death here here is what they do from the blood and the fat everyone see that phrase there obviously David and Jonathan are killing people and it's and, and it mentions the blood and the fat where do you see that collocation happen where do you see that combo of words happen a lot with what sacrifice very good sacrifice what is, what is their act of fighting for God look like? It looks like they're priests offering a sacrifice. Do you see that? The, the reason their death is tragic is because they're actually doing something for God. They were trying to defend the name of God and offer something up to him as worship. And so this, their death is put in sacrificial terms, in a sacrificial context. I mean, this is just really incredible imagery of what it means for a king to be lost, right? Enemies seem to rejoice, curse. Our blessing goes to curse, you know, and they're rejected by God. They're in the sacrificial motif, and they are mighty. Verse twenty-three, you know, I I should probably hurry. They're they're mighty. They're strong. Um, They were united. That's why they're swifter than lions, eagles, stronger than lions, uh, because you know, eagles and lions were always associated with royal people. So they had loyalty to the nation, that's why they were loved and pleasant. They had loyalty to each other. They weren't part, parted in death. And they had an incredible um, incredible might, and so their death was an ultimate sacrifice. Does this sound like? If you really understand this motif and the nature and the theology behind the death of the king, does that help you kind of piece together what's happening at the cross a lot better? Does this make sense? At the cross, God rejected Jesus. At the cross, that's why he has a cosmic impact because he finally, or not should I say finally, he did live up to what it meant To be the real king. Even when he died, he died as a king, right? Not as a thief on the cross, right? He died like that. He died with this kind of honor, and you see the, you don't see direct allusions to this, but you do see the theology of it played out. Because of this massive curse, a curse before on international proportions, a curse of cosmic proportions, a curse of sacrificial proportions, a curse because of the sacrifice of their strength and loveliness, verse 23. This is what Israel ought to do. The, people, the Philistine ladies are what? Unfortunately, they're rejoicing. But what should the daughters of Israel do? Verse 24, you tell me. What should they do? Weep. Why, do, why is their attire described so much? Right? Don't you see it? They got really luxurious clothing. They have ornaments, all these kinds of things. Why? Why? Yes. Who made them prosperous? The The king. That's right. Don't just enjoy what the king gives you when he's taken away from you. Realize what? All your blessing is now what? Gone. All your blessing is now gone. When the king, um, when he dies, your blessings and everything that he's given to you that was so good and wonderful is removed. That's why you should weep over him. He personally has benefited you. This is cause for national distress uh, by the way, when we get into Zechariah 12:10, the nation mourns over their king. I mean, that, that's what happens. Because, and you start to see this, this Davidic nuance start to come out: uh, that the death of a king is a national affair. And once Israel realized that it killed its own king, they mourn. They mourn because they realize what they have done, they put a curse on themselves. Uh also you start to see this play out with like curses the one who hangs on the tree. Does that make sense? This starts to dovetail with that. Are you with me on that? Um, Jesus absorbs curse, massive curse, based upon his role as king and what it means to die as a king. Well, David reflects how terrible this is in verse 26 and 27. And most people seem to put this in because, you know, David's just trying to show off how much he's disturbed. Let's just take him seriously. Uh, Maybe he is really distressed. He has deemed that the love of woman uh, is less than his love for Jonathan. Some have, interestingly enough, accused him of homosexual thoughts here. Uh, No, because he would have been killed. So that, that would just be very simple. Yeah, it's like it's like he's with his men and he says this and then the guy like what? You know, that would have been it. <laughs> you know, and, and not only that, okay, who what does David say? Teach this to your children. So it's like, okay, you know, now this is what the Bible says about homosexuality and the O T law. Now I'm gonna teach you a song and everyone's like, Wait a minute, you know, why Dad I should kill you. You know that, that no, this just it wouldn't rationally work. This is just a way of saying the genuine love that David has for Jonathan and the deep love, the deep love that he has for him. Not a romantic kind of love that we have, that we have this notion of when we think about marriage to a woman, the love that Jonathan, David has for Jonathan is one of deep commitment and it emphasizes his sincerity. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy that affects the world, the cosmos, not even, just, not even just Israel, but its enemies, not just Israel as a people, but even its land, its physical state, it's in sacrificial imagery, you get the picture. It's something that should be mourned by the nation, but not just by the nation, but by you personally you should love the king and his loss to you should mean everything to you. Does this make sense to everybody? This is what should, what was try, what was David was attempting to ingrain on every Israelite's heart and in their head was you need to prize the king. He is worthy of it. He is powerful and of it. And you can start to see all these allusions back, right, to Genesis and all these kinds of things. Now, of course, everyone points out that this is pretty self-serving because who's the next king? David. And you're like, oh, I mean, that's not the spin the Bible has on it, okay? But it is true. I agree. Yeah, it, is, it could be a little self-serving. But do you understand what the text is doing here? David is the right man for the job. He loves this office and understands its importance more than probably any of us do. He understands it. He gets it. And that's why he's fit to enter into it. Does this make sense? Just like you would say if, you know, if somebody was here and they said, I'm going to be, I'm applying to be the president to run for the president of the United States of America. And they ask you, and they ask the guy, you know, had an open forum with him and said, So, why do you want to do this? I don't know. It's, It's cool, I guess. And what are you going to do? Stuff. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not voting for him. I don't, and what are your views? I'm a conservative. Well, it doesn't matter if you're a conservative. You don't know, even probably know what that means. If you have no idea, no value, no respect for the office, you know, did you want to be president since you were a little kid? Not really. I don't even care. I actually want to be a garbage collector. You know, like, I want to be a sanitation manage, management specialist. You know, like, no, yeah then you don't belong there. You have no regards for this office. Get out. David, on the contrast, does. He understands this office. That's why he's the right man for the job, by his actions and by his understanding. Any questions? Good. Next page. Hey, we can make it. If I do one minute for each verse that I have to cover, we can make it. Hey, this is good. So, next context and overview. David is the right man. That's the bottom, that's the foundational level. That's the foundational level. And you need to know that. You need to remember David as a person and who he is by his character is foundational to the entire workings of the Davidic throne, the Davidic covenant, everything therein. That is essential. (coughs) But there's... In this section of God's designating and clearly demonstrating that David is the king for the job, that his dynasty is the one that God has chosen, God has to do a lot more than just show that David is the right person. God has to launch something that will send both a national and international signal that David is the right man, that this is God's choice. And so the first thing that we're going to see, in addition to David's right person, is his military power. That's what we're going to cover today. Military power. Uh, why did Israel want a king in the first place? Remember? Even if it was the wrong reason. Why did they want it? Yeah, to be like all the other nations. And specifically, and I don't know, you know maybe you have read this, but uh, it should be mentioned that Israel was in the midst of some wars at that time. Israel was in the midst of some wars at that time, fighting the Ammonites and other people. And that is what led them to believe, man, we just can't survive with this theocracy. We got to move to monarchy. We got to have a king who's going to go out and fight our battles for us. Hence, the king has to be what? Big and strong. Does that make sense to everybody? Of course he's got to be big and strong. He's gotta be buff so that he can kill a lot of people for us, he's gotta be like Rambo. So that's what their mentality was and so they, they launch with that. Do you understand now why God has to talk about military stuff? Because Israel's wondering, can this guy do anything? And it, there's nothing better that tells a nation, tells a bunch of nations internationally that you're a powerful nation if you can like win a bunch of wars, why? because you pose then a legitimate international threat, right? Why don't we, why don't we get nervous, you know, about Denmark? Because you're like, um, cause they don't, I don't know, like, why don't we? Have you ever heard of the Denmark army? It's like, no. Are you nervous about Switzerland? The only way that you get nervous about them yeah, <laughs> I mean, I mean that. I mean that's the nervousness we get. Why am I? Are you going to get taken over by this by Switzerland? No, they are inherently neutral. That's why you have all your you don't you don't worry about them. You know, like Copenhagen. Like you, you know, you don't get nervous about the Netherlands, do you? Like, oh no, I always thought we could get taken over by the Netherlands. You know, like no, what what are you talking about? You know. Why why does everyone get nervous about Iran or North Korea? Because of their armament policies, yes? That means that they pose a threat. Well, here God is going to use something with David, military, and say, he's got a crazy military, and they're out to kill people, and they win all the time. Even if they're evenly matched, they win you're like, well, if they evenly match and they win, then something has to what? Tip the, tip the scales, right? If it's an even toss-up and they always win in the even toss-up, or even when they're disadvantaged, they still win, then somebody's gotta keep pushing the scales over. Does that make sense? Somebody's gotta be rigging this. God, yeah. And when the nation see, oh man, his military is run by God then they will understand that there is a problem and that we probably need to deal with this man respectfully. You know, and you'll see this, there's a whole strategy here so that the world will know David is the man to watch. David is the man to watch. So let's talk about it. Military power, one by geographical strength. This is kind of like a, yeah, okay, I mean, this is, I mean you have to come up with some kind of heading, so this is helpful. But there's a series of contrasts here. And what I want you to do, real quick for me, is start to list some contrast. Some you what I'm going to give you like 10 seconds, and re, huh?? Two wives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to that in a second. But name some big contrast. Dave inquires of the Lord versus like verses eight and nine on the bottom of the page. Do you see what I'm talking about? Contrast verses one through seven with verses eight and nine. Find as many as you possibly can, and let's talk about them. And you'll start to see, by means of contrast, God brings out the military of David as a power, as a geographical strength. Anyone got one? What? David was anointed. Okay. And what? What's the contrast? Ishbosheth wasn't. wasn't. But what? What was Ishbosheth? He was. What does the text say? He was son of Saul. But he was what? And verse nine. He was made king. One guy's anointed, one guy's what? Forced to be king. You have one who rises to the occasion, he's anointed, he's selected, he is chosen, and the other one is forced. Continue. People are for him. People are for him. Yeah, that's... For who? Yeah, for David, obviously. So he has... Popular support. Well, actually, I shouldn't say popular support. He has support versus what? Not really any people. Yeah, silence. Support versus silence. David is selected by the Judaites, he is anointed by them. The only person who kind of supports Ishbosheth is who? The military. Not even the military, just. Abner. And we don't even know if Abner is supporting this guy or is just doing his job. Right? Does that make sense? There's no idea of overwhelming support or anything of that nature, but there's somebody else who had a comment. No? Okay. Come on, give me some more. Of Of course. Oh, not just Hebron versus all of Israel. Hebron versus what other place? Yeah, it's true, even over all Israel. But David doesn't just rule in Hebron, he rules in Judah and some other places. But where does he rule in Hebron versus where does Ishbosheth rule in? What's that place called? What letter does it start with? Where did he go? Uh, he didn't go to Gilead. Machanaim. Everyone see that at the end of verse 8? Brought him over to Machanaim. You're saying, where is Machanaim? Anyone know? Say it again. East of Jordan. Yes. East of Jordan. Machanaim Penuel. It's like over here. Machanaim. East of the Jordan. (coughs) Do you see, here's a big contrast right there. Hebron is a fortified city in the south. Uh, <clears throat> I remember standing on the hill of Hebron and you see on all sides valleys, just like what other city? Jerusalem. And the reason that it's significant that you see on all sides the valleys, why? Because all the enemies are gonna have to come up to you, right, so you just roll rock and they're all dead. That's very simple. Uh, it's a fortified city. Got a great view. Great view of the hills behind you. You can see any activity. It's just a remarkable stronghold. In fact, uh, Herod built one of his, Herod, like later in New Testament times, built a fortification there at Hebron because of this very reason. It's just a strategic place along the along the way. And that structure, by the way, is still standing till this very day. The top of it. You can't, it's one of the few places, it's the only place in Israel that you can see the top of a Herodian structure. Anyway, the um, Hebron is a defensible city and it's in the stronghold, it's in the center of Judah, more or less. What is, what does this tell you? If they move from CBP, CB, the CBP there, what does that tell you? What does that tell you about the house of Saul? There are, They're running away. Does that make sense? They're running away. This is where the battle is. This is where Judah is. There's where... Okay, Hebron's like more like... There. This is where the fight is. So what should Saul have done? I'm stronger. I'm powerful. What am I going to do? I'll attack right at you. Does that make sense? But what do they do? I will go over here. They're running away. Ma'chanaim is a very fortif- it's a well-fortified area as well. But they're running away. They're running away. This is, this is fortified and situated. This is fleeing and regrouping. They're on the retreat already. The battle hasn't even started. They're retreating. David must be incredibly intimidating. More contrast. There's one big one you haven't caught yet. Two one actually two huh. Okay, David consults the Lord. So, who tells David to go to Hebron? The Lord. King gives instructions and action to David. Versus what? Who does everything for Ishbosheth? Abner. That says everything. You know, uh, I used to really like Abner. Now, now in the Bible, he's made so negative. So it's like, man, mom, why didn't you just give me a different name? You know, no, it's okay. Um, yeah. You know, she, she, my knowing my mom, she was like, what, like Judas? And I was like, okay, 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 you, you win. Uh, you know, King versus Abner. Remember how I said the scales always seem to what tip? We'll see that here. Maybe, maybe not. Um. why? David has this guy. Ishbosheth only has this guy. That's the big contrast. Do you see that? Does this make sense to everybody? And that's going to be made really evident. Really, really evident. One more that you will see here, and it kind of goes with forced to be king versus anointed. Notice how David... Um, he, he not only establishes himself in um, Hebron and over Judah, he also sends messengers to what city? Anyone remember? Jabesh. Yeah, Jabesh-Gilead, uh, exactly. He goes to Jabesh-Gilead, and where's Jabesh-Gilead? Jabesh-Gilead is up here. So he has down here and what? Up here. Does that make sense? And everyone else is sandwiched in between. If you understand anything about ancient Near Eastern war tactics, here's, here's my suggestion. Beware of the sandwich, right? If you're in the middle of the sandwich, that's good for chiasms, that's bad for battles. <laughs> they crush you. That's always the diplomatic maneuver. David already has what? Going for him, the sandwich maneuver, right? But on top of that, I mean, Abner just says that Ish-bosheth is king over Gilead, Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, even over all Israel. No one really actually submits to him. There's no implication of that. Does that make sense? It's just all artificial. Versus David saying, Look, I am the king, I'm the real king, and I want God. I, And I actually do care about Saul. And my honorable actions actually show that I understand. I'm not trying to get Judah to conquer everybody. What does he want? All Israel to come together under him. Does this make sense? You can do it one of two ways. You can have Judah be the launch point for this invasion and recreate the nation Israel. Does this make sense? But the way he words things, may the Lord extend to you loving kindness and truth. Well, where do you hear loving kindness and truth? In Exodus 34. The Lord appears before Moses, remember, and proclaims his name to him. I'm full of loving kindness and truth. Why? David's saying, we all serve the same God. I'm not here to be the next king. We're all serving that guy. So join me. This is what God is doing. I'm not trying to usurp anything. I'm trying to show you that under the cut, co- we're all under the same covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and ultimately later that's headed toward a Davidic one. Join me. Join me. He's acting out of honor, and because of that and through that, a diplomatic situation is set up so that geographically David is this far superior king and clearly belonging to God. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, good. Next page. Uh... We're continuing more about, you know, leadership strength and such. Yeah, we're going to, uh, okay, yeah, I think we could make it. Why not? So, verses 10 and 11, bunch of more contrasts here, right? Ishbosheth rules for how many years? Two. But he rules over Israel. Hey, that's got to count for something. But David rules what? Seven two versus seven, which one's greater? Seven. So you see already, like, the, the author's like, okay, let's just do a simple comparison, guys. Ishbosheth he rules two. David rules seven. David wins this one, too. Duh. But here's, what's the irony of what the author is doing here? Ishbosheth rules for two years over the house of Israel. House did Judah, however, follow David. What is he trying to say? If the House of Judah follows David, did Ishbosheth really rule over Israel? No, it's just a fake. You see, Ishbosheth has, has a fake rule for two years. So I mean, I mean, how, how bad can this be? Not only do you have any length of rule, the rule that you have was artificial anyway. It was synthetic. It was fake. It's like, well, that, that makes you a double loser. And David rules actually over Judah because they actually, what? Followed him. They followed him. They served him. And he rules over them seven years, six months. Okay? Totally different leadership strength. God, I mean, the author just says, if you didn't understand what I was doing before, let me just make it crystal clear to you. David is so clearly the the guy that God wants. And this is demonstrated by army strength. And we can get through the first one, first section, David versus Saul. Oh, well, maybe not, but maybe we can. So Abner goes out from Machanaim back to the city called Gibeon with an O-N. Anyone remember what happened in past history at Gibeon? It's okay. It's not like you're in terrible sin. Uh, the uh, what happened at Gibeon was happened in Joshua. Remember the liars? And they said, "Oh, we're really we're really I'm coming from a far away place, Josh." And so please, you know, remember that? That's Gibeon. Okay? And you're saying and the question you should be asking when you read Joshua is where is what? Gibeon, right? Like you you would probably want to know that. There is this magical place. Anyone of minor prophets know what it's called? It starts with a C. Central. Yeah, Central Benjamin Plateau. If you've gone you would die back, so you should like this should be in your this should be in your sleep. Right? I could wake you up at 2.30. After I woke you up at 1.30, and I say, what is the most what is the central station of Israel? Central Benjamin Plateau. And then you, you just conk out. That, that's how you need to know this. This is so important. Um, Gibeon is right here at the far Extremity uh, toward the west. <clears throat> the reason that is so important is because if you conquer that one city, you essentially secure the rest, right? Notice Abner is moving from east toward the west. So if he crosses the central, Gibeon, central Benjamin Plateau and takes over Gibeon, he has CBP. And if he has CBP, there's two implications from this. First, he can conquer all of Israel. Do you see that? because this controls all the highways, right? Here, I'll show you an easy example of this. If there's a car crash where the five and the 14 meet, what happens? No one, or there's a fire, right? Let's, let's just not even have a fatality in this. There's a forest fire. I'll tell you what happens. I was stuck there one time for four hours because of a forest fire. I'm literally in my car, which has no air conditioning at the time because I'm a poor seminary student. And I just turned off the car. And people just got out of their car and just stood there for hours. We're stuck because God, providentially, maybe maybe for this illustration, caused the fire to happen. And it just shut the entire, the five was backed up both ways for miles. So was the 14. No one was going anywhere until that fire was cleared and we just stayed there for about four hours. You hit one major artery like that, one major intersection, you can control the way movement happens in the rest of the country. Does this make sense to everybody? That's like CBP, that's like CBP. You hit, you you knock it out, you control it, you control the country. Does that make sense to everybody? So why is Abner going to Gibeon to make a statement? This is an all or nothing battle, right? If I win this, if, if you win, and you control Gibeon, then Abner wins over the entire nation. Does this make sense? And if David wins, who wins the entire nation? David, it's all or nothing. This is an all or nothing. That's how Abner wants to set up the entire battle. All or nothing. On top of that, Central Benjamin Plateau. Who lives in the Central Benjamin Plateau? The tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, that's good. Uh, what tribe is Saul from? What tribe is Saul from? Benjamin. Benjamin. So, so he's basically trying to reconquer his home territory, right? You you don't want to be like, hey guys, um, I know we're family, but I got to run. And he just takes over. Uh oh. Hi. Um, he has to conquer home territory because this is home territory. Does this make sense? This is the all or nothing battle. Am I in trouble? <laughs> no, or was he just random? This, is, this will be on the recording forever. Oh, yeah, it's okay. Just, get, just give him a break, you know. Um, <clears throat> this is one, an all or nothing battle. This is the battle for the nation by its geography. And number two, this is the battle for hometown. If you can't win hometown, forget it. It's over for you. That's the situation we have here. Is everyone with me on this? And uh, next time we'll talk about what happens. <coughs>